Last summer, I was frantically tossing things into my suitcase in the middle of my bedroom floor. I was unexpectedly homeward bound from Cedar Rapids to Cameroon, Africa to bury my dad. Dad and I hadn't spoken to each other in over 20 years. Now, there was no catastrophic event that severed our relationship. We just never could seem to see eye to eye. I couldn't meet his expectations, and we were both stubborn. My sophomore year in college, during a phone call, we had a disagreement. We went quiet, and then 20 years quietly went by. I have seven siblings, and we're spread all over the world. And even though they're close to dad, none of them knew he'd been sick either. My oldest brother, Gert, he lives in Texas, and he had a sense that maybe something wasn't quite right. So he went to Cameroon to check things out, and when he got there, he discovered dad was incredibly sick. Within three days, dad was gone. Gert was in shock when he called us siblings in the middle of the night, July 10th last summer, to let us know what had happened and to summon us back home to Cameroon. Now, I lived in Cameroon with dad until I was about eight years old, and I had not been back since. I thought off and on through the years about going back, planned off and on through the years, but there were always too many excuses. Not enough money, not enough time off of work, the political climate there was too tumultuous, so many excuses. And yet, suddenly there we were, all scrambling in two fast-paced warp-speed weeks to apply for emergency visas, book flights, prepare for takeoff. I flew Cedar Rapids to Chicago, D.C., Brussels, Yaoundé, Douala. Hours and hours and hours and hours of flight time. Finally, time to think. And I wondered about three things. I wondered if anything would be familiar when I got back to Cameroon. I was aching for a sense of familiarity. I wondered if I would recognize family or if they would recognize me. And I wondered if family would welcome me home, even though I'd stopped talking to dad. When the aircraft landed at the Douala airport, the passengers erupted into applause. I'd forgotten that tradition. In Cameroon, you clap when you land. It's a thank you to the pilot and the crew and to the gods for a safe arrival home. So I was home-ish. I mean, the passengers and I, we all streamed out of the aircraft, but they, they all looked so comfortable as they were moving through the airport. I was like the limping gazelle all the way in the back of the herd, trying to just get my cues from the other passengers on where to go, what to do, how to navigate through the airport. I mean, they all spoke French. Everything was in French. So no, actually no. It didn't feel like a homecoming at all. Nothing smelled familiar, nothing looked familiar, nothing sounded familiar. There was no wave of familiarity that washed over me, okay? I felt like a fish, completely out of water. So I flopped my way through the airport, if you will, following the other passengers through customs and COVID tests, and we were finally making our way to a woman, and she seemed to be collecting what looked like an exit ticket from all the other passengers. It was the small piece of yellow paper, and I started to panic because I didn't know what it was, but I also knew I didn't have one. So I finally arrived in front of her, and I said, parlez-vous anglaise? 
And she rolled her eyes. She shook her head no. I discovered that it was some sort of like proof of yellow fever vaccination. I thought, okay, how do I get through? I've gotten this far. And I said, what can I do? And she shook her head no. She rolled her eyes again and she held out her hand. She waited. I waited. (laughs) Silence. Well, I thought, if this is the Cameroon of my childhood, money talks. A handful of cash later, and I was on my way. (laughs) With that bit of anxiety behind me, I got back to hoping that maybe once I got out of the airport, something would strike a note of familiarity. So I stepped through the sliding glass doors from the airport into the open air, and nothing. It looked like Arizona, smelled like Utah, sounded like every airport parking lot I'd ever been in. But my brother, Gert, was there waiting for me. We found each other. We hugged, squeezed, stacked my luggage in the back of the Highlander. And off we went on the six-hour drive from the airport to the family home in Chang. Now, initially, the roads were really smooth, okay? I have to tell you, this was really disappointing for me. (laughs) Because I had associated really rough roads with my childhood in Cameroon. Thanks to corrupt government, thanks to French colonization, it meant that historically, the infrastructure is really terrible. So I told Gert this. I'm like, Gert, this is crazy. What's up with these smooth roads? He laughed. He said, just wait. (laughs) And sure enough, those smooth roads turned into the rough and tumble roadways of my childhood. And suddenly we were MacGyvering our way through the rugged urban landscape. Yes, adventure, no government maintained roads, terrible municipal infrastructure, symbols of absolute corruption, but also childhood. We arrived at the family home at around 11 p.m. And the anxiety had started to settle in again. But the gates swung open. And even though it was late, women in beautifully patterned dresses streamed out to greet us. There was laughter, rejoicing, arms wide open. They did recognize me. Or at least knew I must be Akwi. One woman, she stretched her arms as wide as the ocean between two continents. She pulled me in. She whispered, welcome. You're home. And just like that, open arms, open doors, I was home. I was ushered through the gates that were my father's, through the kitchen that was my father's, into the living room that was my father's. They'd set up an altar for him. There were candles, a Bible, Above the Bible was a framed portrait of him, larger than life, just as he would have wanted. (laughs) He was smiling. There were the twinkling eyes of my childhood. This was the man everyone loved. Guests poured in from around the country. Family, friends, colleagues of my dad's wanting to express their condolences in person. I met my three youngest siblings for my dad's third and final marriage that night. 
Yeah, prior to that night, I hadn't even seen photos of them. 12 years old, 14, 16. There was sensitive Teddy, jokester Mba, Colonel Ngoom. You didn't mess with her. She ran that compound. And there were so many aunties and uncles. We all settled into the living room. Some of them sat in the furniture that lined the living room. Gert was sprawled out on the floor, a glass of wine close by. The rest of us siblings were sort of reclined on the sofas. We shelled and tossed groundnuts into our mouths like popcorn. We laughed and we reminisced and we fell in love with each other. We bonded over card games and funeral planning and karaoke. <laughs> to, of all things, the sound of music. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, you heard that right. There is video evidence of us doe-a-deering our way into the night. <laughs> Cuckoo, all of that. Yep, 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 yeah. We danced and we sang and we danced until we were spent. There was beer, so much beer, and wine, and laughter, and tears. One woman said of my homecoming, sometimes things break in order for other things to be fixed. Another woman said, amen to that. She snatched a beer bottle from her husband, gripped the cap between her molars, and yanked. Carbonation filled the air, and I was reminded of the Fanta bottles we used to snap open with our teeth as kids. In the following days, I would spend time outside, walking around the property, literally digging in the dirt, looking for remnants of my father's life. Now, the property was huge, and over the decades, it had undergone lots of renovations, and there, you don't really throw anything away. So there were things for me to find. And as I was looking around, I was imagining how my dad's life must have evolved over the years, through the wives, now with these three youngest children. Teddy, the youngest 12-year-old, he came out to check on me, and he was curious, asked what I was doing. I said, well, I'm looking for remnants and scraps like this. And I held out a handful of rusted nails caked with the red dirt of Cameroon. And he looked at the pile, he said, what are you going to do with that, sis? I said, make art. Oh, you should have seen his face. This is not the kind of thing you do there. So he called his other siblings. He explained to them what I was doing. Ngoom, you guys, she laughed so hard. Suddenly, others gathered. There was Helen, Amos, Christian. They all gathered, and then they started exchanging words, first in English, and then French, and then Meta, and then Pidgin English. They couldn't believe that out of all of these languages, it all translated to the same thing. She's looking for trash. You're looking for trash? I'm looking for trash. She's looking for trash. <laughs> I was looking for trash. What? One man's trash, this woman's treasure, right, right, what? Mm -mm. They were in disbelief. But pretty soon that disbelief shifted to a desire to help. And then pretty quickly, we were all moving around the property together. We'd get to a spot and they'd say, this is where we kept the chickens. This is where we kept all the cars. This is where, and someone would tell a story. That was where, someone would tell another story. That was when, this was where, that was when, and that was how. 
my three youngest siblings, became the bridge between dad and me and all the years that had come between us. And I couldn't help but think about the power of words in that moment. How they have the power to pull us apart, but they also have the power to bring us together. Dad and I, we didn't have much in common besides our stubbornness. We did have one thing that we shared, and it was a love for words. So maybe it's ironic that two people who loved words chose to stop speaking. But maybe it's also appropriate that it was through the words of these three youngest siblings that I found dad, family, home. Thank you.